This morning we're going to be reading from one of the Gospels of Luke. And if you are reading from a pew Bible, it's on page um, 731. And we're reading Luke 7, um, verses 36 to 50. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had, lived in a, who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One one owned him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly. Jesus said, then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but the woman from the time I entered had not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who had forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God. My name's Kevin. I uh, have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Cornerstone and um, want to w- extend my warm welcome to each of you this morning and so you know where we are going. Uh, each Sunday morning as we gather here, we, uh, we spend time worshiping and we come under God's word, the teaching of the scripture. And, uh, and so that's uh, my task this morning. And then we have what we call connection time, which is an opportunity for us to to greet one another. There's coffee at the back. We gather our kids and we respond to what God says to us in his word with worship and with some more songs and some prayer. And, uh, and so that's where we're going this morning. We are in the middle of a series of uh, messages that we're calling Meals with Jesus, Hospitality in the Gospel of Luke, where we are asking ourselves what kind of a community does, is formed that when we believe that we're shaped by grace, that we're the recipients of God's just pure grace, that he accepts us into his family, he adopts us as his sons and daughters, not based on anything that we've done, but based on who he is and what he has done for us, not our merit, not what we've earned, but what he's done for us. What kind of a community does that shape us into? And so that's what we've, uh, and we're seeing that as Jesus uh, eats meals with people. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either at a meal, coming to a meal, or going from a meal. And so uh, we're seeing what happens at these meals. And, and, and we know the, the, the 
the hospitality and the friendship that's formed around a shared meal together. Someone with whom you share a meal is either your friend or well on the way to becoming your friend. And so we, we want to see as a, as a church community what, what kind of a community are we to be if we're formed into, um, by, by the grace of Jesus. What kind of a community do we become? And as a, as a church, Cornerstone wants to exist not just for ourselves, but we want to exist for the flourishing, for the good of the community around us, the community of Virgil, of Niagara-on-the-Lake, of Niagara Falls and St. Catharines, the entire Niagara region. We want our region to be better because of the grace that we've received and the community that God's making us into, that we flourish, that we're for the flourishing of the community that's around us. So in the scripture passage that uh, Jess has read for us this morning, we're introduced to two characters that Jesus has encountered at a banquet. Now, the two characters ca- correspond to two kinds of people in a parable that Jesus tells uh, in the middle of this passage. And one of them is Simon the Pharisee, who is the host that's invited Jesus. A Pharisee is a, was a religious leader in Jesus' day. They were, they were kind of looked up as the very holiest of the holy. They were the ones who really kept the law, and they, they had rules upon rules upon rules that they kept, and they um, were, were seen as the religious rulers and religious authorities. The other character is introduced as a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. It's kind of a, um, it literally says it's a, a sinful woman of the city. I'm not sure if I have to spell it out for you. Um, but uh, pretty much every commentator uh, on this passage would say, this is a woman who has lived a life of prostitution. All we know about her is that she's a woman with a scandalous past who must have experienced the grace of Jesus in some way. Perhaps like the woman caught in adultery in, in John's gospel, she has had this powerful personal encounter with Jesus' grace and truth. So Jesus has confronted her not only with the truth of her sin, but with the glory, with the goodness of his grace, that he receives anyone, that he... And now these two people end up at the same banquet. Now what's striking in this passage is that both of these people are in the presence of Jesus. Both of these people are hearing Jesus' teaching. They've probably been exposed to Jesus' miracles. They are both um, surrounding... uh, surrounding Jesus, they're, they're hearing the truth of Jesus' word and his teaching, kind of like us. We're here today hearing the word of God and the presence of God together. But one of those people leaves totally changed, transformed, blown away by the grace of God, astonished, really, full of joy and full of worship. The other is kind of miffed, put out, confused, unaffected. My hope this morning is that we'll be like, those, like this woman, leaving with our heart exploding in worship, with, with love for Jesus. The key for us to understand the difference between Simon and this woman is that these are two people, uh, that the difference between them lies in their spiritual condition. One's a religious person, the other's a worshiper. One's a religious person, one's a worshiper. And my prayer is that we're going to go from this place identifying with the worshiper, more than the religious person. And so I want to play doctor on the condition of religiosity today. The the illness of religiosity. We're going to contrast religiosity and true worship today by looking at symptoms of religiosity, the cause underlying those symptoms, and then the cure. So what's the symptoms 
of religiosity. The symptom of religiosity is that you have little love for Jesus. Jesus says so in this passage. Little love for Jesus. That the difference between the woman and Simon was that the woman loved Jesus much. The symptom of little love for Jesus can show itself in a number of different ways or forms. The first is that, uh, that you, maybe you have little love for Jesus as you engage in what I would call checklist Christianity. It's where you do the bare minimum that devotion would require. So let's consider Simon. According to the cultural standards of hospitality, it was customary for the host to, that is preparing the, a formal banquet when, when they're entertaining guests of honor that um, Simon did everything that he was suggested by the etiquette of the day to do. He was, um, Jesus was reclining at a table. So in the, in the day, you, you, you try to picture this. They, they would be on couches, sort of, and they'd lean on their left elbow, in, eat with their right elbow, and their, kind of their feet are sticking out from the table, kind of as spokes away from the center of the table. And so uh, Simon, so that's what Simon did, is he suggested by the fact that Jesus is reclining at table. He's in a banquet, all the men would recline, their, their feet are out behind them. And they were, these banquets were open to the public. People uh, could come around and, and hear uh, those of lower social status could come and sit around the edges of the room to listen in on the table conversation. They, in the courtyard, the people, there's traffic coming and going, and people could sit around. Now, if a Simon had a servant wash Jesus' feet, or if Simon kissed him on the cheek or anointed his head with oil, that would have been a surprisingly wonderful gesture. But according to the etiquette of the day, it wasn't required. Simon was not under obligation to provide those things. Hospitality, to that extent, was only required at luxurious dinner parties, like in royal uh, halls attended by the rich and famous. So when Jesus calls Simon out for not doing these things, he's not accusing Simon of discourtesy. He's just confronting Simon with a symptom of religiosity in the soul where you just give what's required of you, no more, no less. So Simon's done only what he has to do, the bare minimum, the checklist. Now contrast that bare minimum devotion with, to that of the woman. When she hears that Jesus is a guest in Simon's house, she arrives intent on anointing his feet with her alabaster jar of perfume. Some, some things you should know about this perfume. It's um, primarily not used for anointing dinner guests. If anything, a dinner guest would be anointed with olive oil, which was relatively inexpensive. But and Jesus wasn't offered that at this time. But So the, the perfume is a nard. It would, have been close to, it would cost close to a year's wage for a day laborer. Now, the, the other thing we need to realize of this is that she would have had to spend it all on Jesus. It's, these, these perfumes were in a, a vial that would have a, a long neck with a, just a tiny, tiny opening that uh, even if you dumped it out, none, none of the thicker, uh, vis, viscous, the viscosity of the liquid of the perfume wouldn't allow it to actually come through, but the scent would come through. So that's why it's like a perfume. It's a, you'd hang it around your neck, and so the scent would come out and off, but you're actually not using up uh, the perfume. But if you're going to anoint someone with it, you're going to actually have to break that tiny glass neck on the vial and, and pour it out. And so she, she pours it out. She, she d- uses all of it. She wasn't planning on just using a couple of drops on Jesus' feet. She came intent to spend it all on him. 
To her, Jesus is all she wants. He's, he's not just another person. He's not just another thing that he, she's adding to his life. Now, third, though, if she's a prostitute, then the perfume would have been used in her profession. But here she is giving it over to Jesus. Think about it. A woman of the city, so radically transformed by the grace and the truth that she's experienced in Jesus that she comes to his feet ready to transform the tools of her trade into an offering of worship. She's saying, I have a better use for this now. I've got a better use for this. There's been a complete change in her life. There's no, she's not relating to Jesus in, in just the bare minimum. So in sharp contrast to Simon, this woman goes above and beyond the call of duty to serve Jesus. She doesn't restrain herself from giving her all. This is the, the kind of contrast between typical religious people and worshipers. Religious folk seek to fulfill the bare minimum that God requires. Should I go to church Sunday morning? Check. Should I read my Bible once in a while? Check. I give a bit of money to the church? Check. Straighten up my life? Maybe I'll even invite Jesus over. I'll treat him kindly. I'll politely listen to some of his teaching, the kinds of parts, the parts of his teaching that fit evenly nice into my own life without really having to change. But there are limits to how much I'm going to give to Jesus. I'm not going to go overboard. Let's not get crazy here. Let's not be fanatical who recl- people who recklessly abandon everything. But worshipers aren't satisfied with that. The bare minimum. They're so amazed that they come to Jesus, that, they get, that, they, that they're invited to Jesus at all. They, when they do, they bring everything. When you encounter Jesus in the gospel, in his grace... You'll have the, you'll, you're pricked by his truth and you're overwhelmed by his grace. You're gonna bring, you bring all your sin, all your shame, all your treasures, you just pour them all out at his feet. So little love for Jesus can demonstrate itself in this checklist, bare minimum Christianity. It can also show itself in a proud, critical, judgmental spirit. Something also calm, common among church folk. A proud, critical, judgmental spirit. Imagine the scene. The woman of the city has entered the banquet. She's made her way over to Jesus' feet. But before she can pour out the vial, her emotions get the best of her. She's overwhelmed by a deep sense of Jesus' grace, of love, of gratitude. She begins to weep uncontrollably. The term that is used to describe her weeping here is used elsewhere in the New Testament for rain showers. She's, She's bawling at his feet. She notices the mess she's making with her tears and she lets down her hair to wipe his feet dry and she begins to kiss his feet. In the Middle East, the feet were one of the dirtiest, most unclean parts of the body. That's why washing the feet was a job relegated to the lowliest of servants. So imagine kissing them. To anoint his feet was highly unusual. You would normally anoint a guest's head. This woman deems herself so unworthy in Jesus' presence that she's content to care for his feet as the lowliest of servants. This woman's great love for Jesus comes from her heart, involves her emotions, involves her wealth, involves a transformation of her, of her lifestyle. It overwhelms her to the point that she could care less what others might think. She loves Jesus. Now contrast her with Simon, Simon's little love for Jesus. Simon cannot, for the life of him, identify what the woman is feeling. He's shocked that, first of all, that Jesus would even accept her actions. 
Maybe he says, Jesus obviously doesn't know this woman's reputation in her city. Surely if he knew what she was all about, he wouldn't be so accepting of her. If he knew what kind of sinner was touching him, he was obviously not a prophet. So because this woman's great love was so foreign to him, Simon wrote her off as a fanatic. All he knew was little love and what little love looks like when it's expressed. And so instead of admiring or even emulating this woman and her great love, he judged it to be shameful and inappropriate. And he might say, well, does it mean if I'm not experiencing this huge emotional reaction to Jesus, if I'm not weeping my eyes out when I think of him every time that what he's done for me doesn't mean that I have little love for Jesus and that I'm religious and not a worshiper? So let's not put the emphasis on the weeping. The emphasis should be on a heartfelt love for Jesus. Weeping is just one of many ways to express a great love for Jesus. Shouldn't make emotional expressions the measure of one's love. We're all wired differently, so let's not gauge our love for Jesus by measuring ourselves to others. Some people are more expressive than others. The question is not how you show your love for Jesus, but if you have great love for Jesus. Not against others. Not Don't compare against others, or even against yourselves. Compare your love for Jesus to your love for other things. For your possessions, for other pursuits in your life. But that, all that emotion will, will seem strange to a religious person because their little love for Jesus. They're going to be suspicious of any kind of strong emotional reaction. So let's play doctor and do a little self-diagnosis. Can you detect any of the symptoms of religiosity in your soul? How big is your love for Jesus? More importantly, is it growing? How would you measure your devotion to Jesus? Are you just giving him what's required, or are you giving him what you truly desire? Now, if you begin to recognize the traces of legalism, of religiosity in your soul, we need to treat it. And here's the truth, friends. All of us, the default mode of our heart, the default position of our heart is to go towards religion, go towards trying to earn it, trying to be good little boys and girls. So we need to know the cause. So what's the root cause of religiosity? Well, Jesus answers that the cause of religiosity in, our, in the form of a parable. And he says, in short, he says, the, the, the cause of religiosity is believing that you have little to be forgiven of. So Jesus tells this parable of two debtors, where uh, the character uh, represented by Simon owns, owes 50 denarii, which is about 50 days wages, a little bit less than two months wages while the woman's character owes 500 denarii 500 days wages year and a half now both cannot pay off their debt but the lender is gracious and forgives both of them so which one jesus asks will love the lender more simon replies it's the one with the extra zero and jesus says yes you've judged correctly so what's he getting at Here's, here's what I think Jesus means. He's, both Simon and the woman believe in God. They both believe that they have sins. When they look at their lives, they know that their lives don't quite measure up perfect to perfection. So they have sins that they need to be forgiven of. Now, for Simon, it's mostly theoretical. He's like some of us. He say, you know, you know when, when, when I say Jesus can forgive your sins, you're like, yeah, so what? I'm still unhappy. I'm still bored. Well, other people are totally blown away. 
So some of us would agree theoretically or theologically that you're loved and forgiven, but there's no passion for Jesus. There's no generosity or worship or service. The difference between Simon and the woman is that Simon didn't understand the gospel. He doesn't understand the depth of his sin, the cost of salvation. And if you would understand that, if you'd understand the depth of our sin and the cost of salvation, we would be changed like the woman is. If you're not living a life of joy, of sacrifice, if you don't find it easy to love messed up people, if you're critical of others, if you're complaining all the time, if you're finding fault in everyone else, it's likely because you're failing to understand some aspect of the gospel. So in the parable, Jesus teaches something remarkable about sin. What's the difference between the 50 and the 500? Ten times, right? Is it that the woman needed Jesus more? Did she need to be forgiven more because she was a worse sinner? Because she broke the Ten Commandments more often? Notice, Jesus does say she owes more. Her sins are worse. She's sinned more. She owes ten times more. But we think... Sometimes we can think, yeah, you know, those on Skid Row or the messed up people, the drug addicts, the prostitutes, those are the people that really need Jesus. They really need forgiveness. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus is teaching. The exact opposite. Jesus is saying there are degrees of sin. The woman owes more, but neither could make the, a dent in their debt. Neither of them could begin to pay back their debt. They had nothing to offer. But the woman knows that she needs it. She realizes she needs it more. She knows she's a sinner. That means you, if you don't have the joy that she had or the peace that she had or the, or the, um, the joy and that she's, she's, the, the passion she's got, it's because we don't see the depth of the sin that can be forgiven. So when you hear the message of forgiveness, the message of our debt being paid, it doesn't move you. It doesn't change you. So the cause of religiosity is believing that you have little need for forgiveness. That you're forgiven little. And to think that, ah, my, my debt's so, so small. I'm, not, I'm a pretty good person. I could begin to pay it back. And then you begin to show the symptom of loving little. Of, of sacrificing little, of having little joy, of having little passion. If you believe that what you've been forgiven of is little and small, that's going to show itself in that symptom of checklist Christianity, of a, of a critical spirit of others, of who, those who are more messed up than you are. So the cure, what's the cure? When you treat a disease, you don't treat the symptoms, you treat the cause. Right? When you treat a, when you treat a disease, you treat the but not the symptoms, but the cause. So the cure for religiosity is to remember your debt and to look at the cost of paying your debt. How can it be that the outwardly moral and decent person in, in, is in as much debt as the gross sinner? How can they be as condemned to prison or slavery? Well, friends, everything that you have is a gift from God. And he's, he's given it on loan to you from God. Your health, your IQ, your talents, your things, your very lives. The very fact that you were born in Canada or live in Canada in the 21st century and not in outer Mongolia in the 10th century 
Because all of, you didn't do anything, anything to deserve that. You've, yes, you've cultivated those things and you've worked hard and you've learned self-discipline. But all of those things are a gift. And therefore, you should live a life of dependence because we recognize that it's all a gift and we owe it to God. And so sin is a desire to be independent from God. It's to refuse to acknowledge that everything is on loan from God. Now, some of us, most of us, not all of us, but many of you here are what I would call church folk. Some of you were born right here on the front pew, I think. And the thing that can occur to us in church, if we're not careful, is we can develop a habit of church that requires nothing of our heart. We can come in, sit down. No, we know the routine, right? We know the language. We know what we're supposed to do. And in doing those things and walking like that and talking like that, we can be completely inoculated to Jesus. Many in this room have been in church a long, long time. And you have no idea how to even recall the the root of sin in your heart. What you've been saved from. It's hard to remember what you're saved from. So I want to just quickly share two things that I think all of us need to practice, that we need to walk in, so we can remember that we, what we're set free from, so that worship can come more and more into our life. First, I think we need to pray that God's going to make our hearts soft and sensitive, that we be moved by the truth. There's something that should happen in us when we read a scripture, like there's something that should stir in us and move in us when we read that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that we follow the spirit that's now at work in those who are disobedient. We're by our birth, the object of God's wrath, but because of God's great love and mercy for us, he saved us, made us alive in Christ, turned us into his workmanship to display his splendor. Now, when we read that, we shouldn't just go, you know, that's, that's nice. That's cool. There should be something that happens in us. Now, the problem with that is that no one of us can decide that something should happen when we read that. If you're a believer in Jesus for a long time, you've probably read, you know, that testimony a a thousand times. So what I'm saying is not just to read Scripture, but to read Scripture and, 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 and ask, Lord, please soften my heart. Soften my heart. Make me sensitive to the truth of your word. Something should happen in us when we read Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became like fools and worshipped and served creation rather than the creator. And, and say, Lord, what, where am I doing that? I'm still prone to do this. Where am I doing that? Soften my heart to that. They believe the lie over the truth of God. Failed to acknowledge God. Where am I doing that? What lies am I believing today? Praying for a soft heart to acknowledge God. When you start praying, God, remind me that this is who I was before I met you. First thing we need to do, remember that we're remember our debt. Second thing is train our mind to and your heart to think that as you see all kinds of evil or things out there, as we welcome in broken people and create spaces where it's okay not to be okay, where it's okay to have messed up lives because we're all messed up. To say, I know I maybe only have owed 50 and Maybe you owe 500, but therefore, but there, but for the grace of God, go I. We tend to judge so harshly. That guy's got to clean it up. That guy has no integrity. That woman's a gossip. That woman's a liar. There, but for the grace of God, go I. It's only mercy 
towards us that has given us the life that we're walking in now. So don't try to separate yourself from a broken and sinful human race. Your separation has not occurred by your own hand, but it's only by the grace of God. And so we have to remind ourselves never to let let ourselves forget it. And then we have to be open and honest with our stuff too. Nothing, there, nothing creates a false community more than fake people who like put on the veneer of, of I've got it all together. Which just communicates to, to the person next to you that, well, you better have it all together too. Or you're not welcome here. We need a, a community of grace. A community of grace is, is a community where, where what we have in common is our brokenness. That's what unites us, is our need for Jesus. We wouldn't be here if we didn't need Jesus to save us from our sins. I'm so bad, it took the death of the Son of God to reconcile me to God. That's, what, that's why we're here. That's why we're in a community together. Last part of the cure is to remember the cost, to forgive your debt. You see, this woman sees the cost of salvation. Remember the cost. There's only one way to forgive a debt, and that's to eat it yourself. Debts can't truly be forgiven. They can only be transferred. They never disappear into thin air. Someone has to pay. If you default on a loan, and you go to the bank and say, I'm very, very sorry, I'll never do it again. To forgive you, the bank either has to eat the loan itself or charge responsible clients more. One or the other. But here's the truth. Someone's going to pay. Someone has to pay. Your default on that loan just doesn't go poof into thin air. Someone's always has to pay. That's what this lender in the parable did. He forgave the 550 denarii. By eating it. Himself. By taking it on himself. And that's what Jesus does. Until you see the depth of your sin... You're not going to be amazed and thrilled by the grace of God. Jesus loves sinners very much, and this woman loved Jesus much. When you know how much Jesus loves you and you love him back, that's the beginning of the creation of a passionate, humble, generous, joy-filled worshiper. And so look at the horrible cross, this cruel, brutal instrument of torture. Stare at it long enough. And what does it tell us? It tells us that our sins are so sinful so vile, so offensive to the holiness of God that the only way to wash us clean was for God to nail his son onto that horrible cross. That we're that bad off. That no amount of love or religious devotion could suffice. No amount of charity or selflessness or compassion can wash us clean. There was no other option. If there was another option, wouldn't God have taken it? But the cross was the only option because our sins were that bad. And once that truth sinks in, We're humbled because we start to see the gravity of our own sinfulness. Now keep your eye on the cross. Now focus on the Savior who is nailed to it. Who is this man? Verse 48, the guests ask the same question. Who is this that says he can forgive sins? Every Jew knew this Old Testament that only God can forgive sin. Friends, this Jesus, keep your eyes on him. This Jesus is the Son of God who became a man so that he could take up all of your debt on that cross. And in his death... Jesus paid your debt fully and freely and willingly. He was glad to do it for you. You contribute nothing. You don't owe a thing. You simply receive God's free provision in Christ by faith. And so 
Jesus says to this woman, go. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You can walk in peace. Not in shame. Not in fear. In peace. So God speaks that to you. So friends, if we believe that, we'll be a worshiping community. And we'll be a transparent community. Where we don't have to be like Simon who has to paper over his, his, with a veneer of his brokenness. You'd be like this woman who's got the reputation of sinning boldly, but who loves much because she's been forgiven much. So I pray that God would give each of us eyes to see that, that we leave this place in the spirit of that woman, assured that you're forgiven, filled with joy, and filled with peace. Let's pray together. Father, would you burn these truths deep in our hearts and souls even and allow us, even in these moments now of, of connection, to just be transparent with one another about our stuff. So birth that in us. Make us into a community of grace where we don't have to always be okay and perfect. In Jesus' name, amen.